Welcome to the Creek Devault podcast, where we discuss the latest news, laws, and trends affecting your industry. Welcome back to the Creek Devault podcast. I'm your host, George Lepinotis. I'm joined today by one of our newest attorneys, Travis Lovett. Travis, thank you for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Travis, you have a very interesting history as as I have gotten to know you during your time here at the firm. Uh, we have talked a lot about your heritage and some of your prior practice experiences. Let's start there. Normally I start with where you fit in in the Krieg DeVault universe, but let's start with your heritage. You are a member of the Cherokee Nation. Is that fair to say? Am I saying that correctly? A uh, member of the Achota Band of Cherokee Indians is a state-recognized band with land base in the state of Alabama. And tell us a little bit about that history, sure. that, that, uh, that, that membership in that nation. Sure. So uh, it's basically a descendant-based group, and there's a whole, uh, I guess I'll back up and give a foundation that there's a difference between federally recognized tribes and state-recognized tribes. And to kind of emphasize what that means, it's important to recognize that the federal government really can't bestow sovereignty onto a tribe. They can only elect to acknowledge the sovereignty because it was pre-existing prior to colonization or European arrival. And there's a whole process by which tribes can apply to become federally recognized. And interesting enough, I saw a statistic once that said most of the tribes that were recognized pursuant to treaty provisions, which were inherently, for lack of better words, grandfathered in to the federal recognition relationship with the federal government, most of those tribes even themselves couldn't satisfy the robust process to be recognized as a fairly recognized tribe. So there's a lot of state, a lot of uh, tribes that are recognized under state resolutions or by state government actions that are unsuccessful or not eligible to become federally recognized. In the state of Indiana, just briefly, there's the Miami Indians that are a group of tribal descendants here, and they are not a fairly recognized tribe. And up north, my office is in the South Bend, Mishawaka area. We have the Pokagon Band. Are they a state-recognized tribe as well? No, sir. They're a federally recognized tribe. They are recognized by the federal government. And what that really means is, that at the end of the day, the big kicker is they're eligible to receive federal benefits from the government. There's a federal trust relationship between the Pohagan Band or any other federally recognized tribe and the U.S. government. I see. So the, 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 the tribe that you are a member of is a state-recognized tribe. Yes, sir. I yes, sir. And you, um, you are beyond just that. And I, I, I do want to talk a little bit about Native Americans and, 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 that, and that history. So let's start there. Let, let's actually go there. We all know that Native Americans predate the European arrival, as you call it. That's recognized history. What, what we really don't understand, though, is that the history of the relationship between the European settlers or, 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 or that colonization period and the tribes is long and varied. And it isn't often, it isn't always 100% clarified or recognized, is it? 
Correct. Yeah. So make make sure I understand your uh, question. Just the history behind you know the relationship between the government and the tribes. You know, when Europeans arrive, it really stems from the Royal Proclamation. When there was a westward expansion, there became the issue. Well, there's Indians out there. <laughs> right. So how do we you know how, you know for, for perhaps a derogatory phrase, but how do we deal with it? Right. Was the government's eye, you know. So they went back to the Royal Proclamation. There's language in there that, you know, reserves that, you know, these Western expansion that the king issued that there would be reserved lands and respect for their land base. And that's really what kind of proliferated the treaty-making process in the early uh-huh. uh, times. So that's kind of where it all kind of really, I guess, originated is one source of um, – uh, one source of authority, but they then went engaged in treaty making process. And there's, you know, every tribe size, the reservation is different. Um, and it was a really a process of negotiation, which um, today we look back and can really pinpoint unfair negotiated sure. perspectives to say yeah. the least. Um, but anyway, that's a, that's kind of the history behind the treaty making process. So if we, if we fast forward the history to today, Today, as you mentioned, there are state and federally uh, recognized tribes. But I want to take just a, a quick primer on what that means. So um, we all, as Americans, understand the structure of our government. We have local, state, and federal governmental authorities, correct? Yes, sir. Where is it that the Native American tribes fit into that? At what level are they... A sovereign like a state, or are they something even more unique than that? Mm-hmm. Well, there's kind of a, many ways to answer that question. I guess um, a lot of, to kind of preface all of this, a lot of uh, federal Indian law has been determined and morphed by jurisprudence from the bench. And they often start with looking at the Constitution. So, Article 1 uh, was Article 1. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 is the Commerce Clause. And if you notice there, there's a provision that the federal government should regulate commerce among the states, the tribes, and within the federal government. So there's just authority here that in those constitution where you see a trifecta of sovereigns. And going back to the Marshall Trilogy, John Marshall wrote uh, three serious cases that kind of articulated what we think of sovereignty of tribes, and they were phrased as domestic dependent nations. And... This is really where the trust relationship comes from. They are under the protection. Essentially, he phrased it as their their wards of the state, if you will, just as you think of any other trust relationship. So the, there's a fiduciary responsibility on the federal government to act on the behalf of the tribe. That's why all the land is reserved in trust. So the land that is reserved, and we in modern nomenclature call them reservations, right? Correct. So a reservation belongs to who? Does it belong to the tribe, or does it belong to the federal government? It's held in trust on behalf of the tribe. The federal government holds it into trust. Specifically, the Department of Interior is the administrative branch that oversees that process, trickling down to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And, in fact, a tribe, let's take the Pohagan, for example, they're a recognized, federally recognized tribe. They petitioned the Secretary of Interior to take fee land and place it into trust. Once that trust status is triggered, you you basically are then clothed with tribal sovereignty and under that land status. So there's not an ability for the state to levy a tax on that land because it's federal land. I got you. And so it's federal land, but it is 
in trust, held in trust for the tribes. In modern times, and I, and I mean modern, even in, in my view, fairly recently, although I think it's been going on for some time, that um, tribes have been involved in the gaming industry. Oh, yeah. That is a, that is a, a clear-cut delineation, and I'll call it, for lack of a better term, a game changer. Yeah, it allowed tribes to have, um, you know, a source of economic revenue. I mean, many tribes are located in rural areas. So typically the two sources of revenue stem from um, casino revenue or some form of natural resource development. Okay. And so natural resource development that they might have natural resources on those trust lands that they are able to exploit. Under the lands, yes. So this is really important because once, you know, the resources, because they derive from the land, are going to trigger all the um, the trust, the, the federal government regulations. And the trust really is a double-edged sword. If you look at um, Native American tribes, especially out west, you see them having a lot of cattle and a lot of ranching practices. And most indigenous nations are typically farming practices from a traditional perspective and so you have to ask well why in the world are they all of a sudden dealing with cows right well the answer is because the cow doesn't come from the land it sits on the land so you can use the cow as collateral but you can't use the agriculture as collateral or any type of you know for lending practice because it derives from the land itself so it triggers all the federal regulations so there are limitations on how the tribes can use the reservation lands they have to use it for the betterment of the tribe as a whole but even more so, back to what you were saying, the, there's a limitation on how they can leverage the land. Well, there's just a huge headache that comes from all the relationship because many tribes want to become corporate participants and they want to enter agreements with non-native businesses. But it creates a you know a threshold of hurdles for the non-Indian to engage in that practice because of all the extensive regulation that comes with it. And I know for purposes of this podcast, our podcasts are designed to give people... Uh, a conversation or a brief insight into different topics that that are relevant and timely in the law. Um, but I know we're bouncing around a little bit, not digging too deep, but that does bring me to another point, and that is the relationship between tribes and their communities, and specifically their non-Native American communities. Uh, we talked before we went on uh, air here today about uh, the investment vehicles that the tribes are now keen to participate in, um, those are, in fact, a way of reinvesting the monies and profits and, and, and income that, that the tribes are generating within their communities, aren't they? Yeah, so, I mean, really, the tribal corporate era kind of was born in 1934 when Congress passed the Indian Reorganization Act. And under that statute, section, section 17, to be specific, allows tribes to incorporate tribes under tribal charters and tribal codes. And these tribal um, uh, entities are essentially kind of acting like a political subdivision of the tribe. And there's a factor test that kind of allows the tribe, is there something, you know, is it for self-determination purposes? Is it acting, you know, with the benefit of benefiting the tribe? And the IRS kind of looks at these and says, well, geez, you know, this is really just an econ development court for the tribe. And they enjoy the same um, immunity and tax immunity that, say, a municipality would, so they can engage in essentially government exempt bonds, if you will, something akin to like a municipality. So these economic developed corps for the tribe then go out and carry out a lot of their um, essentially acts as a holding company or subsidiary of the tribe and then acts 
on behalf of the tribe to generate revenue. As a Native American, do you feel that these advancements in the law, and it's, it, it feels like it, is that, a, is that a correct phrase? Is it fair to say that there have been advancements in tribal law in the United States? Yeah, I think I think Congress and, and courts are catching on. I think tribes have always been there. I do. I truly do believe that tribes have been the for, the spearhead of um, of their own sovereignty and knowing what's best for them. I mean, self determination is a buzzword from Congress to realize that you know these folks know what do know what's best for them. I do want to be careful. You know, I going back to my own heritage and just a descendant of a tribe and kind of growing off the Native American tribe. I want to. Be careful not to speak to say that I've you know didn't grow up on the reservation. I can't see the proliferation from day one as how it's all advanced. But I do know that tribes, when they make their own decisions, tend to do better for themselves as opposed to a top-down approach um, trying to regulate them. That's essentially the model in Canada. Not to diverge too much, but it's essentially an administrative structure there where all the tribes govern under a federal legislative act called the Indian Law, the Indian Act. Their government, how they structure and everything. With sovereignty, the tribes are able to control and regulate these businesses. And so when the um, <clears throat> when these tribal holding companies were proliferating and getting a lot of traction, you know, the big thing was, well, tribes had to learn to separate their business from their politics. They need to treat it like a business and not have the tribal council governing the business. So they need a separate board of directors, stagger terms, and all these, uh, you know, these corporate practices were really born in tribes so i think it's a really a mixture of corporate law and tribal law and it's really fascinating yeah it does sound fascinating it also sounds fascinating because it is a unique part of native american history where uh i don't i want to use the word sophistication uh but that may be an unfair word and i don't i don't mean to say that native americans were not sophisticated before it just seems like that uh, Native Americans are self-determined, that self-determination phrase that you said, uh, have chosen to take that path and are, and that that's creating a level of sophistication amongst the tribes on what's best for them and their people. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, Indian law is definitely a transactional body of law without question. It is a corporate law mindset that tribes are playing. And tribes have always been participants in the economy, going back to the fur trade and how they partnered with different um, nations at that time to, to participate. And here they are today participating in the gaming industry and, of course, their own separate businesses. We look at, you know, now there's huge advantages with some of these quasi um business initiatives that are coming to the state particularly let's look at marijuana the marijuana industry the hemp industry you know when the hemp act and the farm act was passed excuse me the farm act which allowed for hemp production you know the congress said you know tribes can develop their own hemp markets under their own codes and regulations and so when and if marijuana becomes legal we'll see what the congress what type of regulatory framework is played out and how tribes are going to participate in that now you you brought up a good point. Uh, speaking of hemp and and, and marijuana and um, you know in past those have been criminal activities in states. Some states have started to legalize that activity, and you're seeing that become a more common approach. But it it strikes me: do tribes regulate? I'm sorry. Do tribes administer justice on their own? They do, in fact, have their own justice systems, don't they? Absolutely. Navajo Nation, for example, has its own judicial bar that you have to be admitted into practice. Um, 
you know, every tribe has a different perspective on certain type of activities. But without question, tribes do have the jurisdiction to regulate their own members. There is a caveat or perhaps exception with respect to what's called major crimes, which comes from the Major Crimes Act. Um, and that basically says that Congress, through its plenary power, vests uh, under the trust relationship as well, you know, for the state to intervene on these major crimes. So when right. Indians are killing other Indians, regardless of the ethnicity of the uh, the, the murderer, the alleged criminal, the state, or the federal government, excuse me, will can step in and start prosecuting them. Got it. Which is actually, you say, well, gee whiz, we're making sure people aren't getting away with things. But when you got a federal government that's really busy, busy with terrorism and all these other issues, you'd be surprised how many crimes are left unprosecuted or are left um, given the necessary attention that it deserves. On reservation lands. Correct. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. As we think about the future of Native American law, take a state like Indiana where we practice. Uh, there aren't as many tribes as there might be in some states or the western states or, or other states. You talked about the Seminole tribe down in, in, in the southern parts of, of the country. Um, it's, fairly a, it's a fairly new area of law here in Indiana. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, starting out, you know, I think the state has done a lot to to engage and I think the critical underpinning of all of this is government to government consultation and that requires respect for both for both parties need to extend respect. I think traditionally states have not afforded tribes the respect that they deserve. And I think it's backfired on the states. It costs them a lot of money, uh, especially in you know, you're wasting tax dollars to litigate what are very clear federal, fundamental federal and law principles. And I think that tribes, the more they engage in this government-to-government partnership, you see a lot of benefits coming from that, particularly because, you know, casinos brings a lot of employment benefits and a lot of ancillary benefits to not only the tribe, not the tribe, but the surrounding communities. Right. So you mentioned South Bend. You know, I think there's going to be a huge opportunity for the city of South Bend and the Pelagan Band to enter into contractual services and it's going to see a lot of employment opportunities for the uh, folks of South Bend. Well, already has. Uh, in fact, the uh, the Pokagon Band is um, one of the major employers in that, in our area, um, and, and a welcome partner uh, and a welcome presence in that economy. Um, so uh, I can see your point. Travis, I want to end on a, on, on a fun, fun topic. That's the wrong word. On a interesting, relevant, timely topic. I like to keep these timely. And that is the imagery topic. Um, we, we know that there are um, images throughout the United States depicting Native Americans in different lights. Um, as you look at it, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but as you look at it, um, what is it about negative imagery that is so harmful to the Native American culture? Oh, that's a profound question. I think, you know, well, first I think it starts from the federal government actually classifying Indians as either federally recognized or state recognized. I think starting from that as a fundamental principle really creates a have and a have not. And there's, it's really been, um, you know, it, it's almost labeling folks as kind of akin to like a, a, a breed of dogs you know you've got to keep a card that that shows your blood quantum and your papers it's, it's kind of unheard of i mean on the same token um because of the federal trust relationship this imagery uh, you know native americans are unique 
uh, because they have two ethnicities and two two um, identities. They have an ethnic ethnic uh, identity and then also a relationship I- identity. Um, that being fairly recognized and holding a relationship with the government as described. Um, but from probably uh, a subsidiary point to this is getting into the imagery of, let's say, the Cleveland Indians, you know, the mockery of that, that silly Indian on the hat or, you know, certain type of um, – we saw the, the name of the Redskins change, obviously. And so I think that there's a movement to be more – again, going back to being more respectful. And even if a name – that you know isn't necessarily respectful you can't control how the fans are going to act you know you know kill those indians right if you're playing if the bears are playing the indians you know it's it's not necessarily <laughs> yeah i don't think that's uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah but but you can't control how the fans are going to act yeah yeah well um very insightful very um very engaging you and i have talked about this in the past we're going to talk about it again in the future because i'm fascinated by the culture and the history as I think most Americans are. And, um, you know, it's good to have you here at the practice. I know you are part of our business uh, acquisitions and securities practice group, but you are also our first Native American law practitioner. Um, and we are proud to have you here. Um, for those of our listeners that want to know more about Travis, I will tell you that he is also a world champion of sorts um, in Native American ritual dancing. Um, and he has a very rich history. So if you get a chance, take a look at his bio on the website. You can find him on LinkedIn I, as well, I believe. Uh, he's truly a fascinating part of our Krieg DeVault culture. So, Travis, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. All right. Have a great afternoon, and thanks again for listening. Hope to see you soon. <laughs>